This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. From 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Please be seated. Uh, Good morning. My name is Ted Sin, and I have the responsibility uh, this morning to teach from God's word. Uh, If you look at your worship folder, um, evidently in the very full liturgy, uh, there's no room for a sermon. And so in light of that, I'm just going to close in prayer, (laughs) thanking God for the best sermon we've ever heard. Uh, In all seriousness, I want to take a vote. This is not serious. I don't really care what the vote says. I'd like to know if you want a short, boring sermon or a long, boring sermon. Short, boring, raise your hand. Okay, short, boring's win. Uh, so ruled, whatever. Uh, I'm feeling lethargic. It's been a long week. My hunch is that you're feeling lethargic. Uh, it's been a great week. Uh, we've already had a very full liturgy, uh, in all honesty, the best parts of the liturgy have already taken place. And so it's my endeavor to not give you a short, boring sermon, but maybe the shortest sermon I've ever preached, uh, at New City. Uh, if you would lean in, Realize this is the longest text that I've preached from, from 1 John. I'll have to skip certain portions of it to get it done. But in this series, if we haven't already talked about something, or if we're, we're not going to talk about something, I'm going to talk about it today. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, what's the most uh, dominant and substantive word in the text? So what's the big idea of the 15 verses from 1 John? 
So of course, one of the ways that you can study a passage and just really dig into it and understand the primary purposes of an author is to think through the key significant words that they keep writing or saying over and over and over. And I bet if you were listening at all, uh, even now without going back through the text, you can tell me what the dominant idea is of this passage. My hunch is that most of you can tell me the dominant idea, and a lot of you, if you grew up in the church, uh, might even be able to tell me the Greek word behind this dominant idea. Uh, The primary idea is love. So in 15 verses, uh, the noun agape, the verb agapao, the adjective agapetos, those three from that one root appear 29 times. I did not have to go to seminary to figure out that the main point in this passage is love. On average, love or a derivative of love shows up in the text 1.9 times per verse. Uh, God is the the word mentioned uh, next most often in the text. Uh, In terms of key words repeated in the text, the word abide shows up six times. So just to give you a sense for how important love is to our passage, uh, 29 times in 15 verses. In fact, I think that this is the most exhaustive and extensive teaching on love in the Bible. Uh, I haven't checked recently, but years ago, let's say five, I used to check every year to find out uh, what question was most frequently Googled in our culture. And both domestically and internationally, Google was asked more often than anything else, what is love? The world is craving to understand what love is. And we have found this morning ourselves in the middle of what I think is the most extensive and exhaustive teaching on love in the Bible. I can think of other passages or stories in the Bible that may be more famous in regards to love or may drill down into an aspect of today's teaching farther than our text does. But I can't think of another passage where love dominates and another passage where love is dealt with so extensively. I came up with seven points. I I winnowed it down to four. I wanna share with you four truths from the passage uh, and then we will uh, call it a day and continue on in our Thanksgiving weekend. I want us to see very quickly, again, shortest sermon I think I've preached, the definition of love, the obligation of love, the verification of love, and the origination of love. The other points, I could not figure out how to end in ION, so I cut them off. They cannot be a part of my sermon. Okay, definition, obligation, verification, origination. So first, definition. If you've been here at New City, you you already know what I'm about to say. But for the sake of those who have not been part of our community, look at verses nine and 10. Verse nine. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So made clear, made visible among us. So in verse eight and in verse 16, John clearly states that God is love. God in his being is love. In verse 12 and in verse 20, John very clearly states that God the Father, at least, uh, that no one has seen God, meaning at least God the Father. But then John says in verse nine, in this, the love of the invisible God was made visible among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live 
through him. Keep reading in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In a word, love is sacrifice. To love is to decrease and even die so that someone else can increase and even live. Love is to put you ahead of me. In the Bible, the core of sin is self-centeredness. In my advancement of me, I will use you if I have to. In the Bible, the core of love is selflessness. In my advancement of you, I will use me if I have to. Sacrifice, the one word synonym for love in the Bible. The word propitiation is found in verse 10. It means a wrath-bearing substitute or an atoning sacrifice. If you look in verse nine, John says we live through Jesus. And then in verse 10, he says we live through his death on the cross. His death, my life. This is the love of God made visible. The manifestation of God's love is God the Father sending his son into a certain death. It is God the Father sending his son into a certain experience of wrath, the wrath that our sin deserved so that we can live in the blessing of God in light of the righteousness of Jesus, the blessing deserved through his life. This is not the first time John's given a definition for love in this book. In 1 John 3:16, he writes this, "By this we know love. He Jesus laid down his life for us." Now, love can be letting someone else merge in front of you on I4. Love can be wearing last year's fashions so that someone else can have this year's clothes. Love can be bearing the consequences of someone else's sin against you instead of burying them with their own sin. Love can be taking money that we are saving for our future needs and giving it to people with present needs right now. A greater love is taking money we have for our present needs and giving it to people who have present needs in addition to us. Love can be putting your body between a gunman and a, quote, loved one, but love can simply be letting someone else merge in front of you on I-4. Consider the range of these examples of love. Consider the range of these examples of sacrifice. Jesus, of course, teaches that the greatest manifestation of love is my physical, literal death for your physical, literal life. He says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But don't forget what we learned in chapter three. When John calls us in chapter three, verse 16, to lay down our lives for each other, he then says in the very next verse, we lay down our lives for each other when we give one another the world's goods, like food and clothing and shelter and cash. Love can be literally a lethal stab to the heart or love metaphorically could be the journey of a thousand paper cuts. Either way, in love, in some way I die, and in some way you live. First, the definition of love. 
sacrifice. Second, the obligation of love. So we were just in and around verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us in this way, if if God loved us by the Father sending the Son and the Son laying down his life uh, for us, if God loved us thus, we also ought to love one another. Literally, the second half of the verse reads this way. We also owe, are indebted, are obligated to love one another. Remember chapter three, verse 16 of 1 John, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. What does it say in the second half of that verse? And we ought or are indebted or are obligated to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters in God's family. John is saying that God's love for me, God's love to me in Jesus puts me into a constant indebtedness a constant state of owing, O-W-I-N-G. An owing that I do not pay back to God, but I pay forward to other people. John has said this twice in five chapters. He means it. But the sequence and the timing of these two, ver- these two, um, um, these two uh, realities in this book, these two verses in this book, the timing is really important. In both of them, God, past tense, loved us, And we, present tense, owe our lives to God, but we pay that obligation to other people. A young man was graduating from graduate school, and during that momentous milestone of his life, the young man was reflecting upon his life. And while reflecting upon his life, the young man was was floored by and flabbergasted by all that his parents had had invested in his life and invested in his education. And as happens in these times where we're flabbergasted by someone else's generosity towards us, we become ashamed for how little we've communicated our gratitude for that generosity. And so the young man, after the graduation ceremony, pulls his dad aside and he begins to recount to his dad the many blessings that he'd been given, the blessings that had populated his mind in that day. And at the end of the litany of the gifts, the young man said, literally, I owe so much to you. How can I ever repay you? And the dad said, very wisely, I don't have any kids out of graduate school, so this can't possibly be me. So this is not remaining anonymous because it's me, at least the dad part. And the dad very wisely said, go and change the world. And by that, the dad was not saying, go be a historic figure. The dad was saying, go with what I've invested into you and invested into the world. Take my investment into you in which you are indebted to me and pay it forward into the world. You see, the dad wasn't arguing with the reality of indebtedness, but the dad was keeping the sequence and the flow of love in place. If the son pays the dad back, it's not love. But love creates an indebtedness. It creates an obligation. It creates a debt that has to be paid forward. I'm using the word obligation in this point because I think the English word ought, verse 11, we also ought to love one another. I feel like that's a flimsy word. I feel like my religious aunt is saying, you ought not to have your ear pierced. You ought not to drink beer. Okay, which is it? Yes or no? It's not flimsy for John. 
God sent his only son into the world into a certain experience of his wrath and death. And the son willingly, obediently, and submissively went to the cross for us. John's saying, you can never pay that back. But God expects us to pay it forward. John really means this. He writes it twice in the book. At the same time, John will speak of the unconditional love of God and the absolute indebtedness of God's people. Remembering the sequence. God goes first, we respond. I call this not the obligation to love, although I think that's true biblically. I call this the obligation of love. Our obligation to, to love flows from the reality and the truth that we are loved. So in this treatise on love, in this exposition on love, in this theology on love, John tells us a lot. He at least tells us the definition and the obligation and third, the verification of love. The verification of love. By that, I mean our love for one another corroborates and verifies and attests to our love for God. So look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's really strong. That's offensive in whatever language it comes in. For he who does not love his own brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Because love is sacrifice, love can include words, but love is not primarily verbal. Because love is sacrifice, love can include words, but love is not primarily verbal. So evidently, we as humans struggle to love each other the way the Bible calls us to. And we evidently are prone to reducing love to words instead of letting love be what it is, this heart-level sacrifice that may include words, but also may include shutting up. In chapter three, right after telling us to lay down our lives for each other, right after telling us that we do that by giving each other our worldly goods, John writes this in verse 18. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In chapter three, verse 18, John is teaching that our actions of love verify our words of love in that instance to each other. In our text, John is teaching that our actions of love to each other verify our words of love towards God. John is saying that in the music we sing, at worship, when we say, I love you, Lord, and walk out of this place and not exhibit loving actions towards one another, John is saying, liar, liar, pants on fire. If we say with our mouth that we love God and hate our brother, we're a liar. Let's say a single dad is dating a woman who after a while says to him, I really love you, but I don't love your kids. I really love the beginning of this relationship when it's just you and me, but now it's getting messy. And now they're kind of getting in the way. And let's say that the, the woman's actions or lack of actions proves that, as Damien taught us, if you don't love someone, you hate someone. And so let's say that her actions prove that she hates the kids. Hatred is me above you. Love is you above me. What's the healthy man gonna say to that? 
if you don't love my kids, you don't love me. You only love what you can gain from me. The healthy man is gonna say, it's impossible to love me and not love my kids because I love my kids. John is saying, if we don't love God's kids, we don't love God, regardless of what we say. Our love for each other verifies our love for God. It is too convenient in our day and age to profess a love for God. And so the scriptures serve us well to remind us that if we're changed at the core of our being, we love God and we love others in his name. So again, there's way more ideas in this treatise on love than we can look at today. And in fact, every idea that I've opened up, we could explore for an entire sermon. But I wanna look at one final idea in this theology of love. One final idea, the origination of love. The origination of love, not the organization of love, but the origination of love. That place from which love originates. That place from which our love is sourced. So First John is very clear. For us to have confidence in our faith in God, in our relationship with God, for us to have confidence, we have to be able to look at our lives and see evidence of love. We have to see the evidence of sacrifice in our lives. For example, verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so if we need to see love in our lives, uh, wouldn't it behoove us? Wouldn't it be beneficial to us to know the place from which love originates? Look at verse seven. John tells us, beloved, let us love one another for love is from, originates from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And John is saying, as a matter of fact, our love for each other comes from God through the spiritual rebirth of the Holy Spirit and through the ongoing relationship we have with God. And so our love for one another does not begin inside of us, but it begins outside of us. It begins with God's love for us. But even more than that, and very poignantly, John teaches in our text that our love for each other is just the next and final chapter of God's love to us, God's love for us, and God's love through us. Look at verse 12. Not just God loved me so I loved you, but my love for you is the final chapter of a very long story. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love, his love, is perfected in us. This is the Greek word for completion. This is the Greek word to make whole. This is the Greek word for to carrying something through to the end. This is literally the Greek word used by philosophers for their final argument in their whole argumentation. This is not the Greek word for perfection. It's the word for completion with a particular emphasis on the last chapter of whatever reality is complete. And John is saying that when we love one another, it's actually the love of God, it says his love that is perfected, completed, brought to fruition in us. That is in our 
relationships. That when we love one another, we're not just loving each other because God loved us. We're loving each other with God's love. Have you ever been to a house for the first time and seen a light fixture and wondered how to turn the light on? So maybe you're outside and you see a floodlight and there's no apparent uh, door into the house for you to be able to test which switch turns on the light. Maybe you're inside and there's like seven uh, switches on a wall and you're like, I wonder which one turns that light on. What do you do? You just keep trying each one until you find the one that lights up the bulb. So how do you get power to the fixture, right? What that light needs, what that fixture needs is power to come through the wire into the fixture and what, what provides power to the wire and to the fixture? Well, not ultimately, but at least for this metaphor, the, the switch provides the power. Does it do any good to look at the light fixture and say to the light fixture, produce in and of yourself the power we need for light? No. The only thing that's gonna work is to go to the switch that turns on the light and flip the switch. And John is very clear. He is saying throughout this book, we have to see sacrificial love for each other in our lives to have any assurance that we're saved. We have to, uh, if you will, we have to light up and bless other people. We have to see the evidence of that reality in our lives to have any assurance that we're saved. But John is also very clear. How do we see more love in our lives for other people? Where do we get the power for more love in our lives? And John is saying in our passage, we have to know and believe more the love God has for us if we're going to love one another more. It's his love for us reaching its desired end when we love one another in his name. So think about the light switches in a new environment. Like you're at a condo or something, you're at a house or something, you've rented a place and you're there for vacation. Do you ever find yourself continually flipping the wrong switch? I do. And I say to myself, how many times am I gonna flip that switch and hope that light turns on? Sometimes I do this in my very own house. Like I turn the fan on instead of the light. I'm like, why isn't that light working? How many times am I gonna go to that switch and hope that it makes that light turn on? And I, I have found that in my life and in your life, we have these switches that we go to and we try to flip them. We try to turn them on in order to get more love in our lives. Sometimes we try to flip the, I don't have to love anyone switch. But then we're confronted with the clear teaching of the Bible that love is the evidence of faith and that we're commanded to love. What does verse, 20, verse seven say? Beloved, let us love one another, command. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The I don't have to love anyone switch is not a very effective biblical switch. Sometimes we try to flip the I can do this in and of myself switch. It works for about two hours to two days. And at least for me, I'm confronted by my weakness and my failure and my finitude. And I'm confronted by the fact that I'm a light fixture and that I have to be empowered from the outside. But sometimes, hopefully increasingly, we focus on God's love for us in the gospel, we focus on the cross, and we flip the God's love for me switch. And we find ourselves empowered for love. 
we find ourselves taking part in a massive story of which our love for one another is just the final chapter. Where does our love for each other originate? Look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for the statements in this text that we love because you loved us. We thank you for the good news that your love is more powerful than our deadness and our sin, our darkness and our selfishness, that your love for us, through us to others, is more powerful than our own sin. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live in us, that you've brought us to life, that you are helping our minds and hearts make sense of this teaching, that you will bear fruit in our lives because this word will not return void. We thank you that yet again we find ourselves in this place, in this room, in this story, this incredible story that you're writing. We find ourselves not as the hero, but as the one loved by a heroic love. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to decrease, that you would help us to enjoy the life we have in Jesus, that you would help us to find life in the gospel and to have it make absolute sense to us that we'll enjoy that life more and more as we give it away to other people. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.